0: tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Bold move to help our housing crisis, but Could it be a bad move for our environment? HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden is here to talk about an emergency proclamation signed by Governor Green yesterday. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Catherine. So this year-long emergency proclamation does a few things. It primarily creates the Build Beyond Barriers Working Group. And within this group, it brings 22 stakeholders which will convene to review development applications. This includes city, county, and state agencies. And it also includes some environmental and economic groups. The proclamation also offers revised cultural and historic review processes, right? So it's important to think of the proclamation as an alternative review process and not replacing what what we currently have. The working group will only accept projects that meet specific criteria like surefire financing and in places that they say pose no environmental risks. All projects accepted by the working group will be required to break ground within three years of approval. So Governor Josh Green says the proclamation is an aggressive approach to getting housing completed, and he says that chief housing officer Nani Medeiros and her team met with hundreds of stakeholders.
2: It creates this special working group, which is going to be run internally. We're taking a lot of the rules internal so that we can be accountable as an administration to deal with some of the red tape, to deal with some of the permitting challenges that we have in the universe here. We're streamlining development approvals. Uh, We're going to talk about the details of that, which means allowing some third parties to do some of this work, enabling measured flexibility during the review process. But at no time are we going to defy what's important, which is protecting our environment. Conservation land will not be affected. Important ag lands will not be affected. And I know that that's a concern. That's a real concern. That's why Nani and the team spoke to over 200 unique individuals over the course of the last six months.
1: And the Build Beyond Barriers Working Group isn't subject to Sunshine Laws, so that means their meetings will be in private. It's unclear what will be publicly reported out of the meetings and when, and this is unlike the State Land Use Commission or County Planning Commissions, which have to meet in public and kind of make their decisions out in the open. This group will work in majority vote for review with the lead housing officer, who is Nani Maderos, as chair. Uh, Wayne Tanaka is the executive director of the Sierra Club of Hawaii. He has a spot in the working group, but he feels like it may be difficult to advocate when most of the members are within government or developers. He says the proclamation is a slippery slope.
3: I would agree that this proclamation is historic insofar as it is unilaterally imposing some of the most controversial and disputed and rejected housing policy approaches that we've ever seen. But it targets not just environmental protections. So, of course, we're worried about, you know, environmental review and the Land Use Commission and the impacts this could have on our food security and on our natural and cultural resources and our cultural practices. But if you look at the actual language of the proclamation, it's also targeting things like the Sunshine Law, um, Chapter 92. It's targeting Uh, the state procurement code, which helps to guide how taxpayer dollars are spent. It even targets how the legislature appropriates funds for different purposes. So it's extremely far-reaching and broadly sweeping proclamation. And one thing that really concerns me is how it gives so much power to just a select few people to determine whether and what projects would be eligible for these sweeping exemptions.
1: Yeah,
0: I can see how that'd be be a concern Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's going to be behind closed
1: doors. Yeah, and, you know, Governor Josh Green, when confronted with what, you know, the concerns were, he says that advocates need to put their money where their mouth is. And he, he says that what's currently working just isn't good enough and that too many residents have to move away for housing and better paying jobs. Green says the working group will be cautious in its approach.
2: So we'll be telling people who applied, we will be sharing with them the processes that they've gone through, the environmental concerns that were raised, and we're gonna err on the side of having uh, less in the way of projects that would raise any concerns. It's also why we set some very basic standards, like we're not building in conservation land. We know that that's not what this is about. This is about building housing where people already feel housing should be built. I would suspect there's gonna be a lot of TOD uh, in this process. One of the processes uh, that we note for instance, the legislature needs to get together very frequently when they make laws. They have hearings that are public. We put things out. Uh, our administration puts a lot of information out, of course. I won't be surprised if we have uh, WEPA requests about what's gone on. That's OK. We want to share this information. We just don't want to spend 19 years doing it. Um, we've got three and a half years to build a lot of houses, and I think that's the commitment I have to make. But any questions you have, we will give you frequent updates. I'm looking forward to that, in fact, because we want to show people that milestones are being
1: met. So the there isn't exactly an application portal, but the working group it will be launching a website shortly to allow developers to start submitting their applications. Okay,
0: so cutting red tape to build 50,000 homes, and we'll see
1: what gets lost in the process. <laughs> it's the hope to, you know, build houses within the next three to five years. All right,
0: well, thank you so much,
1: Sabina. Mm-hmm. We've been talking
0: with uh, Sabrina Bowden about the emergency proclamation signed by the governor in order to expedite the building of some 50,000 affordable housing units. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
4: Onihoa, Olehua,
0: Onihao, Okawa, Oa,
4: O Moloka, O Lana, O
0: Today, we're focused on a mostly forgotten episode in Hawaii's aviation history, the first successful civilian flight from the U.S. continent to our islands. Almost a century ago, uh, Ernest Smith and Emery uh, Bronte uh, crash landed their 27 foot monoplane after being in the air for over 26 hours. Their trip started in Oakland, California, and their destination was Honolulu, Hawaii. Unfortunately, they ran out of fuel and slammed down at Kiavi Nui, a desolate, uh, rocky stretch along Molokai's southeast coast. According to the Honolulu Star Bulletin, it was the thick, thorn-encrusted limbs of a keawe that extended Hawaii's initial welcome to the daring birdman. The flyer had evidently been heading north along the west coast of the Lonely Isle when the last sputter of his powerful engine informed him that at last, the end expected for the past four hours had arrived, he turned the plane sharply toward the coast and brought it crashing down on a narrow strip of tree-covered beach between the road and the sea. For today's backyard quiz, we're looking for the name of the monoplane. Call eight zero eight nine four one three six eight nine or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag.
5: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. vets, with its Kamaoku Hale Tiny Homes Community. NairitHawaii.com
6: Sweden has one of the highest rates of gun deaths in Europe, and police there are struggling to solve those crimes.
2: Around 20 to 25 percent of all
6: the death shootings are being solved. And that leads to friends and family members wanting to have revenge. Sweden reckons with gun crimes next time on The World.
7: Beginning this afternoon at 1.
5: Support for H.P.R. comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kane'ohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com.
0: You know, about six months ago, Dawn Chang faced opposition to her appointment as director of the State Land Natural Resource Department. But with that behind her, she's been moving on to tackle many difficult issues. One of them is related to Governor Green's emergency housing order, which exempts developers from certain environmental and cultural reviews. So what does that mean for a department whose mission is to
8: protect our natural resources? Here's Chang. This is a milestone. This is a critical response by the governor's office to address the housing issue. But at the same time, the proclamation was designed to take into consideration many of these sensitive issues, especially with respect to cultural resources and, in particular, burials. So there is a process. They have been consulting with the Department of Land and Natural Resources, specifically the State Historic Preservation Division, to have input into a process that does not jeopardize the integrity of our cultural resources, and in particular, our burials. So I am confident, but I'm also very, I'm confident that this is the process that will help us get us closer to housing without compromising our cultural resources. But I'm also confident that there are community members, especially cultural descendants, who will be monitoring the progress of this um, housing initiative, and in particular, the uh, emergency proclamation. So, I think both um, we have had internal safeguards for uh, with the emergency proclamation, but at the same time, I know that we have a very diligent Native Hawaiian community that will monitor and ensure. And we have safeguards, including we will stop if if the area is too sensitive. There are so there's a there's a gradation of how we apply this emergency proclamation more sensitive area, much more reviews. A, an area that is not as sensitive based upon you know, good archaeological data, cultural information, may have less stringent requirements. But again, we always have the safeguards. If we encounter anything, we immediately stop, we consult, we take appropriate action. So I think this is a very good balance of both how do we meet our housing needs and the time period. A lot of this initiative is based upon needing to move things quickly so that it doesn't increase the price of these homes.
0: The community may just want some reassurance that there will be some safeguards, railings, whether it be EV or archaeological sites or wetlands, Yes, that there will be some thoughtful consideration about the sensitivity. Yeah. In no. what these places might mean to people.
8: I, I do want to reassure the community that before this emergency proclamation was actually signed by the governor, months of consultation with the different agencies, with community members, to try to develop a, a process that will be more streamlined, but not compromise the integrity of either our natural resources or our cultural resources. It always comes down to implementation. So I think the governors of the view... We need to start, and I think this proclamation gives us the opportunity to do that. The proclamation is designed that if we have to modify, we'll make modifications. So I am certain that there are diligent people in the community that will ensure that both, if they see something or they hear something, they're going to let us know. But please know that the Department of Land and Natural Resources Is as concerned. So we have been part of the discussions and we will continue to monitor as these projects proceed.
0: Yeah, I think people, you know, may be thinking, is it shades of PLDC, the Public Lands Development Corporation, because Mm. it did cut through a lot of the regulations. And so people were worried. There was some hand wringing.
8: And rightly so. And I think the governor recognizing that, sure, he could just issue a proclamation and exempt himself from, exempt this process from everything. But rather than do that, there were extreme measures taken to consult, to confer, to ensure that we had, as you say, the railings to ensure that for our DLNR in particular, that the cultural and the natural resources were not going to be compromised through this expedited process. But this is not one where the governor has said, I'm exempting everything. He has said, let's look at the process. Let's make it more streamlined. Let's make it more appropriate to the area that we're doing these developments in. But we need to start the development of housing.
0: Did you have concerns that you raised to the governor as you were having these discussions with the team?
8: Yes, we did. So our office was intimately involved in the consultation process. Nanny Medeiros did a great job of involving all of the different relevant offices. So both are representatives from Department of Land and Natural Resources. Seaworm was also part of those discussions. So Nanny and her team took a lot of effort to engage the right state agencies and county agencies and stakeholders before designing this expedited process. but it is not your traditional we're going to exempt you from everything. Let's just find a way to move things quicker and faster. But again, having those safeguards in place. You mentioned seaworm. What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. Commission of Water Resource Management. So again, for purposes of ground and surface water, that division oversees all of the regulations and water resources in those areas.
0: On the subject of water, (laughs) the (laughs) vetoes that the governor announced, uh, he was not going to support a couple of bills? Right. Right. Explain to our listeners what those would have done.
8: So there are two bills that were vetoed. One, it was related to the ability of our commission, the Water Commission, to declare an emergency emergency. And you know we are experiencing a lot more drought. The prediction by the National Weather Service is that this is going to be a drier winter. We're in El Nino, so you know our office saw the results of Red Hill and recognized that we need to be able to respond immediately to these crises. So that was the intent of the legislation. While we are disappointed, I think there are inherent safeguards. The de- the governor has the ability to declare an emergency proclamation. So. I don't think we are at risk. It would have given the Water Commission more tools to respond more timely to these emergency situations. So that was one bill. The second bill dealt with the ability for the Water Commission to increase the fines for those who are violating. You know, we, again, this is all about having tools to manage our resources.
0: With Red Hill, the Navy had exceeded the amount of water that they were pulling out you know, as they were trying to adjust yeah. to this uh, fuel contamination situation. So if we had that bill in place, I mean, how does that affect that yeah. situation? Yeah.
8: You know, that's a good question. I mean, I think that's what triggered for us, for at Seaworm and the Water Commission, we needed more tools to respond. I mean, fortunately, I think the government did respond. Department of Health timely responded. They engaged. So I think that there are inherent tools available to afford a water supply, Department of Health, the governor's office, we just felt that given our jurisdiction to oversee ground and surface water in light of these climate change, drought conditions, that we wanted to also have tools to immediately respond. But I don't know if it would have changed the Red Hill response, because at this point in time, this is really a water quality issue under the Department of Health. And we are deferring to the Department of Health. I think they have got a really good handle on the situation. And so there seems to be good cooperation between the Department of Health, Board of Water Supply, the Navy, as well as Sea and managing this.
0: I think some who were watching that veto were wondering, if we were being more pro-development in that regard? And, you know, I guess if you look at it with the governor's proclamation from yesterday, I mean, you know, I can see how you might want to be consistent Mm -hmm. on the messaging. But I don't know. How do you respond to that?
8: Yeah. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of the governor. All I can say is that he has identified, based upon the community's concern, housing is the number one issue in Hawaii, one if we don't have affordable housing, we're gonna lose more of our local residents. Without affordable housing, we cannot do economic development. So I think that is his, that's a policy directive for purposes of Department of Land and Natural Resources. I mean, we clearly support the governor's administrative policies, but at the same time, we are also balancing the mission of DLNRs to preserve and protect natural and cultural resources.
0: That was Dale and our uh, director, Don Chang, talking with us earlier this morning. We'll continue our conversation right after a short break.
5: Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-N, at costcohawaii.com.
2: Today on The Daily, to refine their popular technology, new artificial intelligence platforms like ChatGPT are gobbling up the work of authors, poets, comedians, and actors without their consent. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon
5: at
3: 1.30.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org.
0: get back to our conversation with DLNR director Don Chang who stopped by our studios this morning the last time I saw her out in the field was a few weeks ago out in Heia U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland announced 16 million dollars to help Hawaii struggle to save our endangered native birds DLNR says the situation is dire for a type of honey creeper by the year's end we could use the akakiki forever there are less than a half a dozen left on the face of the earth here's Chang
8: these are honey creepers. These are birds that have been here before we have been here. The akiki, we know of only five that are left in the world. Our Division of Forestry and Wildlife, they go up into the forest. They are pained because it is silent. The Department of Land and Natural Resources, in cooperation with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, have proceeded on this uh, submission of an environmental assessment to utilize this wabakia. It's essentially a a male mosquito, when it mates with a female, the female becomes infertile. What we have found is that due to climate change, well, one avian malaria is a number one killer. But the mosquitoes are getting further up up the mountains where these birds live, their habitat. So our fear, and rightly so, we have found that the mosquito is the number one killer of our native birds. So there is a so while we have found. Uh, environmental assessment to utilize this tool, proven tool. This tool has been used around the world. With this tool, we hope to one, stop even malaria. There's a hearing on Friday. It is an organization, Hawaii Unites has filed a temporary restraining order to prevent us from utilizing this tool. You know, they raise the issue of, we should be doing an environmental impact assessment because we don't know enough. I will tell you, I know if we don't do anything, those birds will die. They will never come back. I'm not willing to take that risk. So, you know, our department is aggressively defending this action by the DLNR and U.S. Forest and Wildlife. We need to protect these species. So while they're saying, put the brakes on this, we
0: need to vet this a little bit more. You're saying we just don't have time.
8: We don't. We, we don't. I mean, this is a matter of I would, we're predicting um, before the end of this year, two more species will die.
0: Do we have any of these in captivity they are being
8: bred? So we have tried. There are efforts to breed them, to protect them. But even with those efforts, we're not being as successful. We have lost several species to date. But again, there are at least two species that we are predicting will will no longer exist by the end of this, this year.
0: And so you're going to plead that case uh, before are. the judge? Yes, yeah, so it
8: is on Friday. There's a hearing. We hope the court does not denies their request for a temporary restraining order and permits us to proceed. This is what we know. So we're not willing to take the risk of waiting to do more studies, to take more time, and to have more of our birds die. These are connections to our cultural communities. And we need to protect them.
0: The $16 million that the Interior Secretary announced would be available for Hawaii, have we thought about where that money will go?
8: It will continue to help with these efforts, um, you know, doing more studies, doing more protective efforts, monitoring, trying to identify where the the birds are. And then utilizing whatever tools are available to protect them. So greatly appreciate. I mean, mahalo to the Department of the Secretary of Interior, the Department of Interior, for their commitment to. In particular, these are these are culturally significant. And I did have a chance to meet with uh, Secretary Holland. You know, I, I she's inspired first Indigenous Native American to lead the Secretary of Interior. And so it gives me great hope that there's sensitivity, and there has been sensitivity at the federal level, to the needs of our Indigenous communities. And I think that 16 million was clearly a demonstration of their commitment to us.
0: We have just done a number of stories about our malacologists, a lot of the researchers, and DLNR employees who are working to save our native snails. And yes. I know that there is this synergy where the seed bank folks you know, and the <laughs> bird folks, they, yeah. and they kind of look out for each other. So if yes. they see a snail, they know what to look for yeah. in the trees or on the ground yes. to alert you know, right. the teams. So do you think somehow then that money could help to support some of that?
8: Well, I, th- I think what we're finding is that while that money may be dedicated to the birds, it then frees up our other funds to then protect these other species. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, there was a convoy. There was a convoy of Yes, of people, snails. Yes, yes. And they almost broke the speed limit. I think they were <laughs> going 50 miles, you know. But I mean, but, you know, clearly we are mobilizing every tool, every effort that we can. To protect these very significant species that reflect our culture, reflect they are part of our ecosystem. Without them, our forests won't thrive. So, you know, I, I really implore those who, who may not have an understanding and appreciation for how important these species are to us to really think long and hard. What makes Hawaii so unique and special? It is these unique ecosystems. And each one of these species has a role. So, um, you know, we will aggressively do whatever we need to do to protect them.
0: Anything else on on the uh, uh, natural resource front?
8: You know, I, I just want to acknowledge, you know, Catherine, I mean, this job, I have some of the best staff. We've got people who work in our department who probably could work in an academic institution at a federal agency, get paid a lot more but these are people who are so dedicated. That's what moves me. That's what moves the department. So I I have great mahalo to all the our staff that come every day to do the good work of our mission.
0: Well, I think of it now. Uh, I know our partners at Civil Beat did a story about a rancher on Maui. Yes. I guess the state uh, bought some property there and it involves land that but was being leased for ranching. So how do you balance the conservation yes. and agricultural uses? Because we went through this whole process I of know. you folks exchanging, you know, yes. lands with the ag departments so that they right. could manage right. those resources right. better. No,
8: I and you know, I, I really appreciate that. And I will tell you I met with Brendan Baltasar. He is the he is the rancher that was featured in that story. No doubt. Brendan Baltasar is a great steward. He invited me up to his ranch. I visited his ranch. I saw what he's doing there. You know, it's hard. I, it's, it's not an easy task to balance conservation and ranching and economic opportunities that that provides. But the mission at DLNR is to protect and preserve these cultural and natural resources, lands, watershed. That particular parcel of land was recently acquired through the efforts of both the federal government private funds the state legacy lands it was a cooperative effort to acquire that land and mr baltazar he also had the opportunity to purchase that but he didn't so the opportunity came and this now permits us to have a lay of conservation and watershed protection around haleakala it ensures that we have the ability to maintain that forest reserve for fresh water for a community that is plagued with drought. So for me, yes, it's a hard balance, hard decisions, but I err on the side of our mission is the protection of these resources for the future. We need to make sure that there's fresh water, not only for today, but for the future. So That particular parcel is not a part of the Act 90. It is lands that were purchased recently in 2020 for watershed protection, for public trail and access. And we are trying to work with Mr. Baltazar to phase him out so that he doesn't have to have a dramatic withdrawal. But we're trying to take the properties as we put fences up to protect ungulants from going up. So we are working with Mr. Baltazar. If there's other more suitable lands to move his ranch, we will do that. But for us, this was a very critical piece of the puzzle for Haleakala for the watershed.
0: That was DLNR Director Don Chang talking to us this morning about doing more to protect our natural resources.
5: Support for H.P.R. comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Salman Tour, No Ordinary Love. Paintings telling personal stories centered on brown, queer characters. On view now, honolulumuseum.org.
6: Extreme heat is here and it's only going to get worse. If you had a blackout in a major city like Austin or Phoenix on a 110 degree day, Everyone would lose their air conditioning instantly, and thousands of people would die.
0: That's why city governments are hiring heat officers to figure out how to adapt to life on a hotter planet. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point.
5: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov.
0: Civil Beat has a follow-up story about a recent inmate beating death. The event triggered a lockdown in search, revealing contraband that has officials asking how the items got smuggled into the jailhouse. Editor Chad Blair joins us for our reality check today. Hi, Chad.
7: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So this is an article written by Kevin Dayton.
7: Yes, who covers the prisons, the jails for us, criminal justice. And this uh, is a cell-by-cell search that happened at at OCCC, right, the Oahu uh, Community Correctional Center in Kalihi, and it turned up uh, some things that shouldn't have been there in the in the jail: methamphetamine, illegal steroids, uh, cell phones and chargers for the for the cell phones. There was also uh, found vaping products, needles, even screwdrivers, and it is unlikely that. Um, well, I'll just rephrase that. It is likely that the, this this contraband came from staff at OCCC, and not from not from family and friends visiting. This is from sources uh, that Kevin has heard from within OCCC, uh, and of course, uh, you might recall this shakedown was likely triggered by uh, this fatal attack that happened just earlier this month on an inmate. Remember this inmate was beaten pretty heavily and and died and uh, apparently it's unconfirmed uh, that some of that uh, attack might have been caught on a cell phone.
0: I mean it's terrible you know but you know but you wonder yeah how did these things how did these phones get into the prison?
7: Right and uh, you know we should say that at OCCC um, they they stopped uh, friends and family from having contact visits. You can have no contact visits, meaning, you know, you're not physically uh, encountering each other. Uh, but that's been since 2016. So that that has been in place for a long time, really kind of raising the question, well, did it in fact come from the staff? We don't know right now. Uh, we can tell you that the, the searches uh, took place uh, Friday. It was in two modules, Module 13 uh, and Module 17. Both of them house gang members. Uh, that Head injury to the inmate who died has now been classified actually as a as homicide, as a murder case. The search of cell to cell was actually from the Department of Public Safety, which runs the jails, runs the prisons, state sheriffs involved, state narcotic agents as well. There was even the, the use of a, a drug sniffing dog, make that plural, drug sniffing dogs. To, to find this contraband.
0: Well, and, and talk about the kinds of stuff, the contraband that they found, right? Because it's not just phones, but drugs.
7: Yeah, I mean, when you have hyper, you have needles that people are clearly using for drugs, screwdrivers, gee, what are they using that for? It makes you wonder if they're trying to get out. Uh, and uh, of course, we mentioned the methamphetamine and, and illegal steroids. These are things that simply are not allowed uh, in a correctional facility. Um, we do know that there are uh, internal as well as criminal investigations underway to try and find out exactly what happened, how that got there, who did the uh, the transporting of this contraband into the facilities. No arrests have, have been made yet, but um, it is a, a, a big development. And of course, Kevin's just been reporting all sorts of things about what's been happening in our jails and prisons as we have long reported, way overcrowded, uh, particularly in places like OCCC. As, as the state seems to be moving slowly on on both rehabilitation but also on whether to build a new jail in Halava.
0: yeah and then there was that other probe uh, I know that uh, Kevin uh, did a story on uh, I think was it the fireworks uh, that was coming into <laughs> the mail room and you're like what
7: <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's amazing uh, but and by the way uh, cell searches do happen frequently uh, and um, and of course many of them do reveal that the email the inmates themselves have concealed this contraband pretty well but hence the reason to have these unannounced visits to dig these things up I don't know where this is going to go as I said there's been no confirmed reports that it's coming uh, from the OCCC staff or that there was in fact a cell phone recording on video that fatality Uh, but we are hoping to hear information soon as you know Department of Public Safety hasn't always been forthcoming but I know they have made a greater effort uh, to try and interact with the press, and Tony Schwartz there is usually very good at getting back. But it's tough sometimes to find out what's going on inside uh, our jails and prisons.
0: Yeah, but very distressing that an inmate, uh, you know, uh, would lose his life at the hands of, you know, potentially other inmates. Uh, yeah. You know, where were the where were the guards? You know.
7: Exactly, and so. likely gang members involved. We'll see if that's the case too.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Sure enough. That was editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. Time now uh, for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we told you about two daring aviators who crashed on Molokai almost a century ago, on July 14, 1927. History remembers them as the first civilians to fly from the U.S. mainland to the Hawaiian Islands. Their adventure was uh, not all smooth sailing, as the 27-foot monoplane ran out of fuel four miles short of the goal. Instead of Honolulu, they ended up on a rough and rocky stretch of coast on nearby Moloka'i. Amazingly, the pair were only slightly injured, but the plane was destroyed, almost completely covered in Keaubi branches. 34-year-old pilot Ernest Smith and 29-year-old Emery Bronte, his navigator, were able to walk away from the hair-raising adventure. Some historical accounts list the navigator as Emily Bronte, but it's safe to say that the author of Wuthering Heights was not aboard the city of Oakland the name of the plane, and the answer to our backyard quiz that we were looking for. And congrats to our winner, Jocelyn from Hickam. First time winner. You got it right. Uh, Have an idea for a backyard quiz? Send it to TalkBack at (laughs) HawaiiPublicRadio.org. may or may not be familiar with Urashima Taro. It's a Japanese fairy tale, a folk tale, about a fisherman who rescues a small turtle. He's rewarded with a special visit to the Dragon King's Undersea Palace, where time flows much slower. Well, this weekend Ballet Hawaii ballerinas take to the stage to perform the piece composed by musician Takashi Koshi. It's been a labor of love and decades in the making. Take a listen. (laughs) This will be the fourth time that this piece has been staged, but this time as part of the summer intensive that will be held at Leeward Community College Theater this weekend. We talked to Koshi and uh, uh, Ballet Hawaii's artistic director, Pamela uh, Taylor Tong, about the performance. Uh, Koshi has been the live accompanist for the ballet school for decades now. He talks about how the ballet score has transformed over the years.
6: I can tell you, I started writing this ballet when I was in high school, when I was 15. And I had it as an orchestral suite, and I submitted it to Juilliard along with my first symphony as an audition package. And they turned me down, so I ended up going to Oberlin Conservatory. But I kept the uh, orchestral suite, and I worked on it over the years. And when I was in Taiwan, I was uh, accompanist for the Cloudgate Dance Company for two years, and I added a couple adagios to the ballet. Then I came back to Hawaii, and I was accompanist for modern dance classes up at University of Hawaii, and I played with uh, Kenny Endo. I. Gained from him the flexibility of the taiko drums, what you could do with them, and the fact that uh, he used to be a drummer, so he can read music. So I added some taiko drums to the ballet, and then this year I added a salsa, the summer salsa, to it because... I wanted to draw on my experience at playing with Salsa Hawaii and Rolando Sanchez, and I played with them for five years, so I wanted to add something of a Latin flavor into the ballet. So you know, it's been getting... Longer and longer, actually, you know, all these different things have been in there and, and revised. So, this is the best production for one because the technology has progressed so much. You know, the software sounds so realistic with the sound of the orchestra. When we did the first production, it was terrible. <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> when you, I guess, when you compare it, when you see how much richer that it's mm-hmm. become.
6: Yeah, I guess back then it sounded great <laughs> because, you know, it was the uh, early days of putting orchestral music onto the computer and playing it solely on the computer. So, you know, it was a great innovation. But now, 30 years later, we have such sophisticated audio quality that it's just not acceptable anymore, what was acceptable in 1989 when we first did it. So this production is so good for the recording quality of the music.
0: Well, you know, Pamela, it must be such a treat, though, to have this
9: for your students and knowing how it's really just grown over the years. It has. And Takashi plays when I'm teaching a lot of the classes. And so it's just an amazing experience all the time when he plays it. So I knew it would be a successful production as well, too. So... It's exciting to see it happen.
0: And so, you know, I guess when you look at our ballet community and, and you've watched it grow over the years, I guess, what is the satisfaction for you? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan, so I've gone to, you know, all the Nutcracker shows and, and you know, it, it's just a wonderful thing to see a lot of our young ballet
9: dancers blossom. Yes, yes, what's exciting to me, I believe, is to see the dancers grow up and from young students, you know, three to four year olds, they start, and to see them develop, and we have one dancer who is a principal with Carolina Ballet, another dancer, Mark Tucker, and his wife, they are principal dancers at Eugene. Mark went to MITPAC and then he danced with us and then carried on. So we have alumni that were with us before, And so they're there and an inspiration for the students to understand where they could go. One danced with Orlando Ballet and then got her degree while she was in the company and then came back here. Her parents were doctors, got her white coat, and now she's a doctor in Washington DC, Roxanne Cassidy is she's a lawyer she was in that group of dancers that grew up together and it's friends forever and they've gone other places so they don't all become professional dancers, but the camaraderie of what they experience in the studio and their understanding of what they have to do in order to be the best they can be. Yeah, and it is discipline, isn't it, Takashi? I mean, I know you as a
0: teacher, you know, and me as a student back in the day, you know, it, it you do need that discipline in the arts and it just transcends to, you know, whatever you decide to do down the road.
6: Yeah. The performing arts are not goal-oriented. It's a process, you know. It's a something that makes your life better. It, it adds something that's intangible to your life, you know. It can't be measured in how much money you make or how important a position you have. You just got to do music and do dance. And the discipline that's required will, will shape your mind and shape your outlook on life to be more focused and more centered on things. And when you want to focus, you're used to focusing because mm-hmm. you've done that for the discipline of learning your art.
0: You know, I was fortunate enough to go to the YGP competition in California to see the talent and then to have our young dancers see they raise the bar and so it just makes them
9: try so much harder. And we're set apart a bit being on the island so going to YGP and other competitions that there are they see where other students of the same age are and they're all different levels. I think there some feel as though they're on the same Par. Some say I better get busy, but it's something that opens their eyes, and they they do work harder.
0: I don't know anything else you want to say, Takashi. Just about you know your passion with your production, and like you said, you feel really good about this is the best that it's been.
6: Yeah, we've uh, also been through four different choreographers and uh, (laughs) this particular choreographer has been very easy to work with and we've ironed out all of the problems you know we had each production have a a different set of problems so we know what to expect and it's just going to be so much better than the previous productions that we had. It's scored for orchestra and I'm almost finished printing out the parts for orchestra. So if Hawaii Symphony Orchestra wants to do a live performance with us, I have the parts printed out and put into notebooks and I'm
0: I hope um, they're listening. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we have a few friends, I yes. think, in the uh, classic music world. Yes.
6: <laughs> and in the future what I have is another ballet. You know, people are always asking me, what are you gonna do next? Well I've done <laughs> the next So I can answer that question. So during the pandemic, I worked on another ballet called Momotaro, which is even more famous than Urashimotaro as far as Japanese uh, folklore stories go. And Urashimotaro is one hour long. Momotaro is two hours long. And I have most of the parts printed out for Momotaro. (laughs) So ideally, we would have an evening with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra where we could do both Uda and Momotaro with a live orchestra. But that's far into the future. You know,
0: but uh, the possibilities.
6: <laughs> yeah, the possibilities are there. You know, If we start talking about it now, maybe eventually <laughs> we can make that a reality. So okay. that's what we're looking for in the future is working with a live orchestra. But what you will hear when you come to the performance is a computer generated orchestra. But it gives you an idea of what we're working at. We want a live orchestra, of course, you know, but you almost won't miss it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) The computer technology is so good that the recording sounds like a live orchestra, you know, and there's like 40 different parts and it all fits together. And I think it'll be a very enjoyable experience. You know, it includes a a regular orchestra, but extended with uh, taiko drums, and koto plays a big part, too. So it's trying to represent Japanese culture and present it to the larger public. Okay. But it's going to be a real treat though, Pamela, for the folks that come out. It
9: truly is. It's a performance not to be missed. It will be on the 22nd at Leeward Community College, 4 p.m. and Takashi's Urshimitaro is the opening and then we have By George, which is a ballet by Tom Pezik that I had worked with in Atlanta Ballet and it is Broadway style. All of the music is George Gershwin. And so it's something that will make you smile by the time you finish. Okay, all right, (laughs) but it's a nice mix of um, tradition and and, uh, and, uh, a beautiful piece that Takashi has done, and then it's fun and playful and makes you smile. That was Takashi Koshi and Ballet Hawaii Artistic Director Pamela Taylor Tong
0: talking about an upcoming production this weekend. Look for links on our website later today. Thank you. does it for us today tomorrow we hope to hear from some rail riders been on the train does it work for you share your comments or questions call our talk back line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can also find the conversation podcast on our website or anywhere else you go for podcasts I'm Catherine Cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation